You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In this episode, I want to share with you more about the three-step process that you should follow when unpacking and exploring your unconscious biases. I know that by going through this three-step process, it will help you to better understand the inner field trip methodology, that it's not just a cool and catchy name, but it's actually a mission or a philosophy that many in my community on Patreon understand. And so my hope is that as you continue to get to know me and my work, that you'll keep this three-step process in mind because it will definitely help you as you continue to do this work of reclaiming your sensitivities. First, let me tell you how the inner field trip came about. I had launched my community on Patreon in October 2017 after a blog post I wrote containing nine writing prompts went viral. And I know vir- you know something that goes viral will depend on you know, people's, it's very subjective. That's what I'm trying to say. But for me, a blog post is typically shared on my blog about 150, 200 times. Well, this particular blog post was shared a thousand times in just four hours and then 10,000 times in the first three weeks. And that has never happened before. So based on the advice of one of my friends and colleagues, his name is Paul Zelizer. He encouraged me to start a community on Patreon. He has a community on Patreon and has had much success. And he felt that the work that I was going to be doing, whatever it was, because in October 2017, I didn't know what my focus should be. But he felt that a community on Patreon would be the best place for me to be able to continue to deliver these writing prompts to help those who are interested to unpack their unconscious biases. At the time, I called my process the contemplative methodology. I think that's about eight or nine syllables. And I didn't really like it, but it was the only thing that I could think of to explain my process. What I do with my process is I create writing prompts to help us unpack biases. Some mistakenly call me an anti-racism educator, but I'm not because my writing prompts and my body of work doesn't just focus on the issue around skin color privilege and racism. What I do is I look at the traits that uphold the dominant culture, that uphold a culture of oppression And I develop writing prompts to help us to question and interrogate the ways in which we uphold those various systems or those various traits. So, for example, one of the traits of the dominant culture is this need to do everything in an urgent way. So I have a couple of writing prompts that helps us to understand and interrogate why we are married to this 
idea of urgency and how does that show up and how has that harmed or helped us in terms of adopting a attitude of urgency. So I do not consider myself an anti-racism expert. I do not consider myself to be an anti-racist educator. And when I see people referring to my work as such, I kind of cringe inside. (laughs) My profile on Instagram is very clear. I am an anti-bias facilitator. And my writing prompts help us to interrogate the ways in which we prop up a system of oppression. A system of oppression is not just racism. It's sexism. It's homophobia. It's Islamophobia. It's our unwillingness to embrace the uh, quote-unquote dark emotions such as anger and rage and sadness. So that's what my work is. And so each week inside my community on Patreon, I would deliver a new set of writing prompts. And then patrons within the community would spend some time in their alone time and use stream of consciousness writing to explore their own attitudes, feelings, and beliefs around that particular theme that was raised in the writing prompt. So as you can see, that's a mouthful. So to try to explain to someone that I help people write their way through their unconscious biases often is kind of difficult. So I needed something that kind of encapsulates my process using some two or three key words. So I I was using the contemplative methodology. (laughs) Even saying it now, it just feels very wordy and tongue twisty and all that. It also sounds very academic. But corporate loved that term. And as I was coming out of my year long writing process, where I deconstructed and decolonized the narrative that I've been led to believe around my social and biological identities, I started doing workshops for corporate teams around this concept of using guided prompts and stream of consciousness writing to explore unconscious biases. I'll let you know that I did not enjoy that work. I found, and I couldn't place it at the time, but I found that I felt very confined in these rooms. I'd enter a boardroom, I'd enter a meeting space at this corporation's office, and I truly felt that I was just you know, it had me second guessing whether I was doing my best work. It was in April of 2019 that I did a workshop for a group of leaders who chose to be in the room. It was a group of leaders who were working at becoming anti-bias, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive. And so they came from the real estate industry They were movers and shakers in the real estate industry here in Toronto, where I live and work. And I was invited to come in and do a three-hour workshop. And I found the experience so refreshing. There was a a hyper-engagement. People were super involved. And I realized that the difference was that for many corporate teams, people are in the room and they didn't choose to be there. And often with corporate teams, because people don't want to get emotional in, tr- in front of their direct reports or in front of their peers, what I get in the rooms is, is a restraining of the emotions that needs to come out as people start to question and interrogate the ways in which they prop up the dominant culture. 
And so I made a commitment at that point that I would no longer work with corporate teams or if I did, I would follow the method that one of my facilitators does where she will work with corporate teams, but she allows each employee to make the choice as to whether or not to be in the room. And that's one of the things that she stipulates in her contracts. It cannot be forced. But for me, because I have great facilitators who have studied with me, they know my process, and they go out in the world and they do workshops for corporate teams, I decided that I would continue to focus on individuals and individual leaders. And as my work continued to mature and grow, I realized that it wasn't just any leader that I was going to work with, or it wasn't just any leader who responded to my body of work. That it was specifically those who are deep feelers, those who care deeply, people who are highly sensitive and have gentle and quiet personalities that tended to respond best to the combination of writing prompts and stream of consciousness writing. Still, the idea of the contemplative methodology just didn't seem to work at all, not only for me, but also for the target that I was going after. Now I was focused on individual leaders who are making the choice out of their own disposable income to be in the workshop rooms with me. So towards the end of 2019, after I had gone on a multi-city tour where I went to different cities throughout North America, Canada, and the United States, and brought my workshop to different cities that I visited, I was sitting back and it was December 2019 and I was planning to go to Australia and New Zealand and bring the workshop to different cities in those two countries. And so at that point, because I had gone on tour, I realized that I loved the idea of visiting different locations. I also, while on tour, I took my camera and I started telling and capturing stories of me as I was on tour. And of course, I loved meeting my patrons in person in each of the cities. I like to say that although I missed home, I didn't feel homesick. And it's because every city I went to, there were always patrons there. And they were the ones who would pick me up from the airport. They would drive me around. They would offer me gifts. They'd have dinner with me. And I just felt a sense of community. And it was so beautiful. As 2019 turned into 2020, I became fired up about the idea of continuing to tour. And due to the explore within me, what came up was this idea of field trips, that I would plan a field trip in a certain city where there was something of historical significance that could explain the origins of our unconscious biases. I would invite patrons to join me in that city and tour that particular landmark. And then we would spend the next day doing some reflective writing. And I was envisioning that we'd be outdoors and maybe in a park, writing and sharing and so on. So the idea of field trips was really starting to appeal to me. And I was going to bring my camera and take images and, and shots and do small mini documentaries about our experience. And although I still had my sights on Australia and New Zealand, the fires that started in Australia put a stop to my plans. 
I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to go and do a tour while Australians were focused on saving their biodiversity from these fires. And so I put a pause on planning my trip to Australia and New Zealand and watched with interest as to what was happening with these fires. And then COVID. (laughs) Oh boy, COVID-19 definitely put a stop on everything as countries started to close their borders. And when Prime Minister Trudeau put out a call saying, if you are Canadian, it's time to come home. I knew to myself, hey, this is not the time to be planning trips around the world. And some of the places I wanted to visit is I wanted to go to a place called Hogan's Valley in Vancouver. That is the site of what some consider to be Canada's Black Wall Street. And it was a strip of road where a lot of black families lived and and, and owned businesses. And the city of Vancouver planned to construct a a portion of a freeway through that very neighborhood. And as a result, it displaced many of the black families that lived there. And to this day, those black families just no longer exist. And it's hard to find black people in Vancouver. So that was one place I wanted to go. I wanted to explore that, that road. It still exists. And the proposed highway was never built through that place. But I wanted to take patrons there so that we can see the legacy of what racism looks like in a place where people think that is polite, progressive, and post-racial. And I want to thank one of my friends, Rachel Ricketts, for pointing that out to me because I had no idea that even existed. On the opposite side of the country, I wanted to visit Preston, Nova Scotia. Preston was actually the site of the first wave of Jamaicans who were forcibly removed from the island of Jamaica to Preston, Nova Scotia, as part of a treaty that was signed with the British militia. The year was 1759, and I wanted to show that Jamaicans didn't just come to Canada in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. That 200 years earlier, a group of Jamaicans were sent, although involuntarily, to Preston, Nova Scotia. And so I wanted to do a field trip there, bring patrons along, so that we can explore what the legacy of that racist act looks like. There's another place called Africville in Nova Scotia that had a thriving Black community. Many came through the Underground Railroad and settled in the area known as Africville. The Nova Scotian government pretty much razed the entire neighborhood, displacing many of those who had shown loyalty to the British crown and also fled from slave conditions through the Underground Railroad. There were also spots throughout the United States that I want to visit where some of my ancestors had done some significant things. I have an ancestor who was part of a committee that financed the or made funds available for a lawsuit that a gentleman with the last name Plessy had 
brought forward against the Louisiana train system in order to desegregate or to challenge its segregation of the train system. And so I was fascinated by that discovery and I wanted to go to the spot where a placard sign now exists and then bring my patrons there to explore this interesting part of history. I also wanted to visit France, where my French ancestors came from. I wanted to visit Jamaica and a few spots throughout Jamaica that hold significance for my ancestors. And so it was a deep, deep plan that I had of bringing the classroom into real-life locations. I also had a vision of doing other field trips to museums that for some, they don't have anyone in their family that would want to go to different museums commemorating and, um, and, and remembering different events throughout American history. And so I was going to plan those type of trips and we would go there together and, of course, do reflective writing afterwards to reflect on our experience. So COVID-19 changed everything. And as I sat here wondering what was next and how I can bring a field trip experience to my patrons, knowing that we just could not travel, that's when I started to ruminate in my head and, and through reflective writing started to dig deeper and take a look at, okay, if I can't do a physical field trip, maybe I can do a virtual one. And then as I sat there and reflected more, I said to myself, but we don't do virtual field trips. We actually do inner field trips. And I sat there and I thought, and the more I repeated inner field trip, inner field trip, inner field trip, the more I realized that I had landed on the phrasing that captures exactly what we do. And so that's how it came about. I remember the light bulb went off when I was in a interview with Jen Postoloff, who is the best-selling author of On Being Human. She had me on an IG Live. And while we were sitting there, I, I had shared with her some information. I said, you know, it's like going on an inner field trip. And she said to me, oh, my goodness, that's such a great idea. And so while I was on the IG Live with her, I went and registered the domain name. And that's something I like to, you're going to hear from Kelly Deals in uh, a few interviews coming up where she talks about naming and how to protect your names. And she doesn't say this from the perspective of of a lawyer because she isn't one, but she gives some really great advice around how naming things is a form of justice and how you can protect your names when, especially in a world where people fail to give attribution to black, indigenous, and women of color and people of color. So one of the things I do is I register a domain name. If it's available, then I pay for it. It's like eight bucks a year, 12 bucks a year. And it's good for me to do that. And so that's what I did while I was on this interview. I was kind of distracted. And I went ahead and I registered a domain name. So in April 2020, I now felt really good about this domain name. I felt really good about Inner Field Trip. It it rolls off the tongue much easier than the contemplative methodology. <laughs> and now I felt really good about that. Once that came about, I was able to change a, a lot of the messaging. It started to make sense. 
the inner field trip is all about going within and, and hitting the rugged trail of your interior where you go to your innermost trail and you meet with your inner oppressor and you know your inner oppressor is is on that part of the trail you see there's when if you go hiking there is a part of the trail that is seen that is marked that is often paved and most people will traverse that part of the trail because again it's marked it's paved it's easy but i'm of the type where if i'm on the paved trail and i pass kind of like an opening in the bush it, it like I look into it and it becomes this like it's like it's calling me come 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 and I can't resist going off the beaten trail to see what lies within this opening and I can tell you that some of the most rugged pieces of the trail is within that opening that is off the trail figuratively that's where your inner oppressor is that's where it lives it's there and it's not it's not like you have to keep walking and walking and walking until you find your inner oppressor. Your inner oppressor wants to be found because it has a lot to say. And the inner oppressor is that part of ourselves that bullies and shames and and pressures us to submit to the dominant culture. And it does so in order to keep us safe. But what you'll find is as you ask your inner oppressor or f- specific questions you'll find that it will give you specific responses in a rambling sort of way. And that's why we use stream of consciousness writing to capture what our inner oppressor says. And we do so not so that we can say, okay, there, I've done it. I've solved that problem. Now I can fight this bias and it goes away. No, because because we're human, we will always have biases. And an unconscious bias is simply a hidden prejudice or stereotype. So if you are human, you will always have hidden and unseen prejudices and stereotypes. When we go through this work of interrogating our inner oppressor and using stream of consciousness writing to record what it says, our unconscious bias becomes conscious. And instead of trying to fight it or ignore it or diminish it, The consciousness of that bias allows us to understand how to mitigate that bias whenever it is triggered and it pops up again. That's what we need to do. And that's how we need to uphold the work that we do in unpacking our unconscious biases. And then we realize that part of being human and part of reclaiming our sensitivities is to accept that both good and bad resides within. One of the traits of the system of oppression is this need to be perfect. That the demand for perfection harms not only those who identify as white, but also those who identify as black, indigenous, and people of color. And why? Because perfection states that if you have white skin, then you are flawless and pure, that you are without mistake. But if you're human, you know that humanity is flawed and full of mistakes and full of errors. And I don't mean that in the way that humans are made. I mean that because our human experience is an ebb and flow of happiness and joy and and sadness and anger, it means that we can never be perfect ever in this lifetime. 
And because there's a demand for perfection, it means that we will do everything we can not to fail, not to make mistakes. And sadly, it's the making of mistakes that helps us to grow. And it's the making of mistakes that helps us to find innovation. When we come back, I'm going to go into those that three-step process that you should take to, in order to take aim at your unconscious biases. In this space, I will be sharing testimonials from patrons who have gone through the inner field trip experience through my exclusive community on Patreon. I could extol the benefits of becoming a patron. However, it's better if you can hear from someone just like you share what it's like to be guided by me on the inner field trip journey. The inner field trip is what I call doing the inner work. You may have heard that phrasing from time to time. I've seen how powerful the inner field trip has been to those who participate in it. And in their own words, patrons will share with you how going on an inner field trip has changed how they raise their children, teach their students, care for their patients, write their books, and operate a business, just to name a few. You can join the inner field trip community at any time. You pay what you can from four predetermined amounts, the least being $5 per month. For less than a boost on Candy Crush, for less than two days of your monthly Netflix membership, you can begin the work of protecting your energy so you can unapologetically stand on the side of justice. And when we're not doing the inner field trip, your monthly commitment goes towards helping to produce this podcast. Although $5 a month doesn't seem like a lot, when it's multiplied by hundreds of patrons, it means that I can hire someone to produce and publish the episodes thus free me up to focus on the conversations. Because if we depend on me to research the guests, interview them, edit the audio file, upload it to my hosting platform, write up the show notes, edit the transcripts, and then post to my socials. Oh my goodness, I'm just getting exhausted thinking about all that work. I'll pod fade faster than you can say super crap of delicious delicious. Say that 10 times. So to become a patron, head on over to www.innerfieldtrip.com and click on join the quest. Again, that's www.innerfieldtrip.com to become a patron. And we're back. Now that I've given you a general sense of how the inner field trip came about, let's take a look at the three steps you need to take in order to explore your unconscious biases. It follows the acronym AIM, A-I-M, and each letter in AIM stands for a particular part of the quest to unpack unconscious biases. As I said earlier, I like using acronyms because it helps to keep me focused. And as I thought through, well, how do we, you know, what what are these stages we go through in exploring unconscious biases? I came up with this long prose, pages and pages of information. (laughs) And then my need to be less verbose started to emerge. And I asked myself, okay, what acronym can I use? And I 
I lamented over the acronym for quite some time until I landed on AIM, A-I-M. And this is the three-step process that most people go through. And most of us will start with a awareness. We become cognizant that something is not right. Something has happened to make your unconscious bias known. You may not, well, actually, let me take that back. You may not know what the unconscious bias is, but you are aware that something is not right, that there's a conflict between what you believe and how you behave. So you might say, I don't see race, I see the human race. But yet, if a person of color passes you on the street, you clutch your bag or you cross the street and go to the other side. So what you believe that you see the human race and not race and how you behave is in direct conflict with each other. Or you may say something like, um, all lives matter in response to the black lives matter. So that's what you believe. But then how you behave is that you are adamant that black people should not move into your neighborhood. So there's a conflict between the two. And often you're not even aware of that conflict until something raises your attention to that. And so it's in this awareness stage, as you become cognizant that there's a problem, there's a conflict between what you believe and how you behave, that that's where you start to look for information to either help confirm that this isn't a problem, or you look for information to help give you names and words to what you're actually going through. I love to use film and television as examples, and I'm, I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings, Frodo. He's in the Shire, so everything's great, everything's amazing. Frodo is just having fun. He goes to his uncle's house, which becomes the ancestral home for the Baggins, and he meets with his uncle, and his uncle's like, I'm going on an adventure, and then leaves this ring with Frodo. And Frodo is aware that his uncle is acting weird. His uncle doesn't want to touch the ring. He tells Frodo, no, 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 don't, don't, don't let me touch it. You, you take it, you keep it for, you know, you, you keep it safe. And so Frodo is confused. And so there's an awareness that something is wrong because there's a conflict between belief and behavior. The belief that the ring is so beautiful and gorgeous, but the behavior of his uncle in saying, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to touch it. Don't let me touch it. The Matrix is another example I love using. So Neo is a software engineer or software programmer by day working for a corporation. And at night he hacks. He's a hacker. And so at one moment while he's hacking on his computer, he gets this message. And so he believes that his world is just this this dichotomy between by day he works a full-time job and by, by night he does hacking until a message comes through on his computer saying, hey, Neo, is that you? And he looks up. He's like, what's going on? And the message comes back, follow the white rabbit. And so now we have a situation where Neo has become aware that something is amiss. And so when it comes to your walk, the beginning or your unconscious bias walk, the beginning of that walk is a sense of confusion. You've become aware that there's a conflict between what you believe and how you behave. And you go in search of information to help you name and give words to what you're feeling. 
At this point in the A, in taking aim at your unconscious biases, a lot of people will abandon the effort or the quest. They find information, it's too hard, they get overwhelmed, and then they put it aside and they go back to their known world. But for many others, it's now become too much of a burden to stay in this conflict. Often, I'll tell you what often people do, instead of moving to the I in AIM, they jump over I and move to the M, which is motion. So most people become aware of their unconscious biases, or to be more realistic, they become aware that there's a conflict between what they believe and how they behave. And instead of focusing on the I, they immediately jump into action. They put together the anti-racism educators list. And I can't tell you how many times my names have showed, my name has shown up on many of these lists. And as I said earlier, I am not an anti-racism educator. And so I marvel at how often people will add my name to the list. Like, these are the anti-racism educators to follow. (laughs) They'll put a list of, these are the books you must read. And in episode one, I talked about the danger from a historical perspective of lists. Nazi Germany put together lists of their enemies and then rounded them up. And, you know, it like lists in history are not a good thing. So, but that's what people do. And, and the reason why they're doing all these actions, they're going to the protests, boo, they rush. I had a therapist with a larger platform than mine. She took my writing prompts. <laughs> she claims that she didn't know I even existed. But somehow, I don't know how this happened, she took some of my writing prompts word for word, put it on an image, didn't give any attribution to me, put her name on these images and claimed the writing prompts as her own. And then puts up another slide saying, I'm going dark. I'm going dark so I can amplify melanated voices. The conflict. And so she was so anxious to get into motion that she failed to do the I in aim. And the only reason why I even knew that this woman had passed off my writing prompts as her own is because one of my patrons showed up in the comments, or, or no, not in the comments, she, um, she messaged one of my facilitators and their good friends and said, I think these are Lisa's words. And this is, this is, I, I, this is an aside. When you do the work, the inner work of unpacking your conscious biases, you tap into your ancestral wisdom. And then everything you do vibrates at that level. It's almost like an ancestral signature that is unique to you because only you have the ancestors that you have had. Even if you have siblings, there's something unique about the way that your ancestors will show up and speak to you that they won't for the other people in your family, and especially if you're doing your healing work and you're doing the work to heal your bloodline. And I can go into much more detail around that in a future episode. But it's amazing because when patrons go through the process of interrogating their unconscious biases, they often come up with questions of their own, and it never sounds like mine. Because when you do this work of divesting your submission to the dominant culture, you start to access your inner guidance and your ancestral signature and everything you do at that point just vibrates. Everything you do, the words you write, the language you speak, it just vibrates at this particular 
frequency that it's hard for anyone to copy it. And it becomes easy for people to know when you're being copied and plagiarized. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Not the plagiarism. The plagiarism isn't a wonderful thing. What I mean is accessing that inner wisdom. That is one of the other benefits of going through this process, going through the inner field trip. So people put together lists. They go to the marches. They jump into action. They read all the books. They share, oh my goodness, I read this wonderful anti-racism book. And, and there's this sense of excitement that they discovered this book. And then they look in the comments and someone goes, oh, if you like that book, you should read this other anti-racism book. And, and I don't like the excitement that I'm seeing. <laughs> it shouldn't be exciting to learn that people are being oppressed due to nothing more than a function of their biology. And so I see all this action taking place. People will donate money and think that that's enough. I've donated money to this person. I've paid my reparations, not understanding that reparations has to be paid out to the right person. And it's a transfer of wealth to right a historical wrong. So if you're buying someone's book and they happen to be black, that's not reparations. That's buying a book. If you join someone's Patreon community, that's not paying reparations. That's exchanging value, which is money, for value, which is access to a community. So we start to conflate what reparations is. And you have, to, you have to be clear that if you are transferring wealth from one, from you to a black person to right a historical wrong, that you understand that you're giving it to the right black person. So if you are American, you should be paying reparations to an African-American. If you're British, you should be paying reparations to someone who is of Caribbean descent. If you're French, you should be paying reparations to those who come from Haiti, Guadeloupe, Martinique. If you're Dutch, you should be paying. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like reparations takes planning and it takes attention. But because you're so busy being in motion and taking action, you conflate buying a book from a black person with reparations. And I didn't even talk about the amount. Like whether it's $5, $20 or $2,000, I'm not even focused on the amount. I'm focusing on the intention. And buying a book isn't paying reparations. That's simply exchanging value for value. But of course, because you're so fast in motion, because you're still aligned with the culture of urgency and the culture of dominance, you're not even stopping long enough to ask yourself, is this really what I should be doing? And the reason why people jump into action after they become aware that there's a conflict between what they believe and how they behave is because they want to show the world that they're one of the good ones. And so if you're a white person and you've become aware of racism and white privilege, you rush to try to do all these things, attend the march and put together the list and uh, you know, buy the book and you do this and then you, you, you tell the whole world that these are the things I've done in the last two weeks to, to support black lives and you list it out. It's all performative. And then everyone climbs into your comments and they clap their hands and they congratulate you for, for, doing, for being a good leader. You're such a great leader. You know, it's all performative because when the eyeballs turn away, when the spotlight turns off, what are you doing? 
If you are a straight person and you've become aware, aware of your own homophobia or transphobia, you might be buying the books and attending the workshops and yes, I'm all for trans lies. I'm all for gays and, and lesbian lies. And then you list all the things that you're doing, you know, and then what? Now you're bored and you move on to something else. Like, And I can keep going through different privileges and how people with that privilege actually cause harm because they jump into motion way too fast. And so instead of becoming cognizant of this conflict between how you behave and what you believe and then jumping immediately into action because you are so desperate to show people, no, 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 I'm one of the good ones. You need to back up, back up to the eye. And that is interrupt. And that's where the inner field trip comes in. The interrupt is where you slow down fast enough so that you can start the process of asking yourself, what is my individual responsibility in helping to dismantle systems of oppression? My way of doing it is using guided prompts and stream of consciousness writing. It's a great introduction some people will do the inner field trip process a few times, some just once, and then they move on. But however and wherever you are on your anti-racism, anti-bias, and anti-oppressive walk, the inner field trip is just one way for you to interrupt your unconscious biases. That's the way that you do the work. And I know sometimes you hear, do the work, do the work, do the work. And you're like, what? I read the books. I watched the movies. I am doing the work, but it, it takes a little bit more. You see, when it comes to doing the work, what you do is, again, you slow down fast enough so that you can interrogate your own beliefs. And there's many ways that you can do this. As I said before, my favorite way is to use guided prompts and stream of consciousness writing. Because often people will sit down and they'll go, okay, okay, I'll, I'll write my way through my unconscious biases. And then they end up having a empty experience because they're not sure how to focus their inner oppressor. Or they start writing and it becomes, ooh, I get stuck because I don't know what to really ask. And so that's why having guided prompts can help. You can join my community on Patreon there are other resources out there that I've come across that you can use cards. Desiree Lynn Attaway has produced some cards called Sister Talk. And these cards, each of them have questions to help you interrogate your own beliefs around different biases. There's another book called The Racial Healing Handbook. Again, I'll link to all these in the show notes for this episode. The Racial Healing Handbook is a wonderful workbook with lots of great questions. There is another workbook that I recently got my hands on. I believe it's called Decolonize First. Again, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And it's a way, it was written by an Indigenous woman here in Canada. And it's, a, it's again, a beautiful resource that you can use. Leila Saad's Me and White Supremacy is another resource. She often says that this is not a book that you read. It's a book that you do. And that will help you as well. But the other ways that you do the work and interrupt your own biases is not just by sitting down and doing stream of consciousness writing. You can have conversations. 
Yes, you can. If, if you desire, you can do that. Another way that you interrupt your unconscious biases is you, that you follow accounts of Black, Indigenous, and people of color on social media who are in their joy and pleasure. Too often, the only time we see Black, Indigenous, and people of color is when they're lamenting around race. And that in and of itself is a form of racism. To only see a Black person when they are yelling out loud about the injustices of racism, that that's the only time you react to a Black person, that is racism. And it's something that Kevin Quashie wrote in his book called The The Sovereignty of Quiet. And that book changed my life, and I'm hoping that I can get an interview and a conversation with him soon. So make a commitment to fill your news feed following those who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are in their pleasure and joy, because we don't only have expertise in skin color issues. And I've seen how some who are financial professionals or fitness professionals who happen to be Black, and they post one thing about their experience with racism, and suddenly they're hailed an anti-racism educator. When in fact, no, they're a financial expert. They are a fitness professional. That's where their expertise lies. So that's another way that you can interrupt your unconscious biases, is to follow those who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color, who are in their joy, who are in their pleasure, and who are talking about other topics besides race and skin color issues. Another way is to produce art that imagines a future without bias. That's a really another great way that you can interrupt your unconscious biases. If you're a fiction writer, if you are an illustrator, if you're an artist, then ask yourself, how can I create a world that is free of bias? And what would that look like? And start to create that through your illustration and art and words. Another way for you to interrupt your unconscious biases, in addition to following BIPOC, Black Indigenous people of color who are in their joy and pleasure, and also interrogating using, using guided prompts, and then imagine what a future without bias looks like and do that through art and words and music and illustrations. But another thing that you can do as well is be aware of the words that you're using that are racist or sexist or homophobic or ableist. One of the things that I've been trying to do is catch myself anytime I use phrasing such as, well, he is tone deaf or they were blind to that. Even using the word, oh, she's so crazy. That's all ableist. And ableist is a term that means that you're using a disability to refer to bad behavior when in fact there are people out there who actually have this disability. And so we should refrain from referring to bad behavior using words that people actually use to refer to their disability. In the show notes, I'm linking to a resource where there are words that are ableist and suggested differences that you can use. So again, that's in the show notes for this episode. The other thing I want to add as well in helping to interrupt your unconscious biases is to cite Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So 
it's not unusual for people to take ideas from BIPOC and then pass them off as their own without giving any attribution. And we've been conditioned to believe that the only people with any intelligent thought or any innovation happen to be white men. And there's a historical reason why, if we look as far back as we can go, we'll see that those who were the elite and educated were men. And often it was men who had the luxury and the education and the time to be able to write and compose songs and produce art, whereas women were largely dismissed. Education can only be afforded by the nobility and the wealthy. So if you are descended from farmers or peasants or from those of the third or fourth estate, chances are your ancestors did not have the money to send children to school. Instead, children were required to work on the farms, in the fields, in the bakery, in order to help the family stay afloat. And of course, the legacy of chattel slavery for those of African descent, colonialism for those who live in Southeast Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, and Latin America. It has given rise to this idea that no matter how BIPOC perform their labor, that it is not compensated, it's not cited, and it's not given any respect. I remember years ago when the actor who played Sandra's husband on The Cosby Show, I can't remember his name right now, someone took a picture of him working at Trader Joe's. And people mocked that and mocked that he had been on this really successful show and here he is decades later bagging groceries. And I thought to myself that there's something deeper here beyond the fact that it looks like an actor's fall from grace. That the mocking is, in fact, the mocking of black labor, which has never been respected. And so part of helping you interrupt your unconscious biases is to ensure that when you are quoting BIPOC, that you cite them. You keep their names in the images that you share. You keep their names in the quotes that you share. I would even challenge you to purposely seek out BIPOC and read their books, read their blog posts, read their articles, watch their films, and start to refer to that in everything that you do. It's time that we elevate BIPOC because they're just as intelligent, just as wise, and just as knowledgeable as anyone else that's out there. As you can see, there's a lot of work to do in the interrupt stage that after you become aware Instead of jumping to the M to show that you're one of the good ones and then causing even more harm, instead, after awareness, move to the I, which is interrupt, and use some of these suggestions to help you in your quest to become anti-racist, anti-bias, and anti-oppressive. And then, once you interrupt and you've worked through your own unconscious biases, now you're ready for motion. As I close, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Inner Field Trip podcast. For more about me and all the resources mentioned in this episode, head on over to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Search for episode three. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely. Bravely.